Thank you all very much. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Glad to worship alongside you all. When we sang that first song or that last song at the 9 o'clock, I was like, oh, I cannot wait to sing this at the 1045. So, uh, so anyway, not that the 9 was bad. It's just different. That's all. So, uh, hey, how many of y'all came to the men's fellowship dinner on Friday night? Raise your hands real quick. Okay, quite a few. We had so much fun, y'all. Uh, just if, if you missed it next year, come, please. But, I, I mean, pickleball, spike ball, cornhole, wiffle ball, uh, the, the whole night, great barbecue. People stayed till midnight. It, it was so fun. The, the only downside was the, the finals of the cornhole uh, tournament. Daniel, Ernest, and I lost, like, lost badly, just so you know. Like, got trounced by the Avant brothers, like, beaten so badly there were whispers of PEDs, uh, you know, for their, them. And I'm not going to say that's true because it's cornhole, and I don't know, but, you know, they're whispers. They're really, they're just a ton better than us. That's, <laughs> that's the truth. And, um, and, and we're living with it. Um, come next year if you can. And, th- and thank you guys for, for showing up on Friday night. It was, it was a ton of fun. Let me pray and we will turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 33. Bow your heads with me. Father, what a joy to sing, it is well with our souls. And I pray, God, that we would believe it, <laughs> that we would know your goodness, that we would know that your gospel has, has overcome overcome the hard things of our lives, overcome the things that we wish didn't exist. Father, I I pray that your gospel would redefine our disposition and our positions on everything. And I I pray that as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, uh, we we would look at something that is probably pretty familiar, and we would see it with new eyes, and, and that you would help us to glorify you more fully as a result of our time studying your word together. I pray that you would do a great work. I pray that you would do it by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And we love you and we thank you for your presence here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of y'all know about Curious George, like the cartoon character? Raise your hands real quick. So like almost all of you have heard about Curious George. Uh, It's a book and the most famous book was The Complete Adventures of Curious George, written by Margaret and H.A. Ray. So, and if you're not familiar, and like all five of you, Curious George is a monkey, and he's a cartoon character, and he's a monkey that's constantly getting in trouble and almost like disastrous type consequence, but he always escapes like right at the last second. So it's, it's super fun. I mean, I read it to my kids. I think I read it when I was a child. Like it, it's great. Curious George, uh, super fun about this monkey who's always getting out of trouble, narrowly escaping some sort of disaster. Did you know, all of you who are familiar with Curious George, did you know the Rays were German Jews and Curious George was actually an autobiographical sketch of their constant near escapes from the Nazis? I don't know if you knew that. It's true. It, it, it's absolutely true. In fact, the Rays escaped from Paris right before the Germans invaded, the Nazis invaded, <clears throat> on bicycles. And if, if you remember Curious George, he was always riding around on a, a little red bicycle. And so that, that was a tribute to their escape from Paris. Just something you might not have known. And what's curious about that to me, not, no pun intended actually, um, 
it's a familiar story, but, but there's additional information that adds meaning to what is otherwise a familiar story. Well, our passage today is, is similarly familiar, and it also carries additional meaning that you might not be aware of. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34 with, with similar eyes. Let's start with verses 17 through 22. Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. But before we even get into the content of what Paul is saying, I just want you to acknowledge like the emotion behind the content. Like Paul's furious. This is not just a problem. It's a big problem. In verse 17, he says, you're doing more harm than good when you gather together. In verse 18, we know that it has something to do with divisions. In, in verse 20, he's like, don't even call what you do the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not the Lord's Supper. Now, that should beg the question. What are the people of God doing when they're gathering together that has Paul so hot and bothered? Like, what is so infuriating to Paul? And, and he's furious here. I mean, understand, that's exactly what's going on. In order to really understand this, and this is kind of the hard part of this sermon, You've got to understand some historical cultural background. When, when the church back then gathered for communion, they didn't gather in a room this big. Okay? There, there were no rooms this big. The church didn't meet in a church. The church met in homes. And when they were gathering for communion, they were generally meeting in wealthy people's homes. And the reason they met in wealthy people's homes is wealthy people's homes were bigger than poor people's homes. Some things never change, right? And so you're trying to get a whole bunch of people into a house to have communion. And even with a big house, a wealthy person's house, not everyone can fit in one room. In fact, the, the dining room of a wealthy person's home was called a triclinium, a triclinium. That, that's the dining room. And a dining room, a nice dining room of a big house would, would seat somewhere between six and 10 people. I mean, 10 people is a giant triclinium, okay? And so everyone else who was coming for communion, and it's the whole church of Corinth, they would meet in the atrium. The atrium's exactly what you might think. It's, it's an outdoor sort of patio. So eight people or so are in the triclinium, and then everyone else is out in the atrium, and, and they're all having communion together. Now, already you can see how this could be a problem, right? You've got 30 to 50 people outside on the, in the atrium, and then you've got eight people or so in the triclinium. Wealthy people would invite their best friends in the, into the triclinium. So six or eight people out of the 50 or so who were coming, like they get a special invitation into the dining room. And, and so there's this stratification. There's a social stratification because everyone else goes into the atrium. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 is going to give you a little further hint of what's going on here. Verse 21, 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So here, here's what's happening. Wealthy people would enjoy a full meal together before everyone else even got there. So <laughs> the select people, I'm, I'm going to take you and you and you and you. Y'all come early. We're going to have a full you know, three-course meal, five-course meal, whatever it is. I mean, we're going to eat. We're, we're going to have this feast. We're going to call that worship. And then everybody else is going to meet out on the atrium, and, and they're going to get the scraps. You see how that's a problem for Paul? Everyone else is going to get scraps. It goes on in verse 21. It says, one goes hungry while some get drunk. And I don't even know that the people who are getting drunk are actually getting drunk. I think it's a stratification comparison. Like one person isn't getting anything and someone is satiated. They're getting more than they need. It's weird because... That's actually how culture works, isn't it? Look, I want to be really careful here. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Paul isn't a socialist. He's just not. I mean, like, if he wanted to rail against wealth disparity, now would be the time to do it, and he doesn't do that. He doesn't rail against wealth disparity. There's going to be rich and there's going to be poor, and Paul's like, that's not my issue. When wealth distinctions, when class distinctions start dividing the church, that's what Paul's taking issue with. That, that's where he gets really mad. Let me ask you a question before we go on. Do you think this bugs you like it bugs Paul? Like, is this, like, if, if that was happening here, would you be like, hey, this is just wrong? I mean, it's, it's totally wrong. Or would you be like, ah, it's just kind of the way the world works? The reality is, I saw an emotional fervor in Paul that I do not imagine would exist if I were Paul. It, it's just true. I, I probably don't get as furious about this as Paul. And the, the question is, why is Paul getting so furious? Like, what, what exactly is the problem? Let's go on and read verses 23 through 26 and see if we can start to get at his line of thinking. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now I'm going to confess something to you. For about a quarter century, once a month, I've been quoting this passage. Every time we take communion at Grace Bible Church for about the last 20 years and for five years before that when I was in Mammoth Lakes, California, I, I would quote this verse. Until two weeks ago, I probably didn't know exactly where it was located. I would have said 1 Corinthians. I didn't know that it was 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. But I could do a pretty good job of quoting this passage. It wouldn't be perfect, but I would say, on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Whenever you take it, remember me. Now, that's pretty close. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, 
And he held it up before Simon and said, this is, this is the blood of the new... You know, I, I would say it, and I, I've, I've said it. And if you've been here for a long time, you're like, he says the same thing. Yeah, I'm quoting scripture. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know that I ever really thought about what it's about. I mean, I, I knew that it was about communion, but Curious George was something more than just a monkey. Like there, there's, there's more to it. And I'm not saying communion's like a cartoon or a monkey. I'm just saying maybe there's more to the story. And what is verses 23 through 26 really about? Ultimately, what Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us is that we have, as Christians, one hope. And we have one tradition built around that one hope. And, and, and you might be like, okay, what exactly is the tradition? Verse 26 kind of gives it to us in summary. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we get together for communion, we're not taking communion today, but when we do get together for communion, we remind one another of our hope in Jesus. It's, we, we're reminding each other, this is about the Lord. This is about his death. This isn't about us. This is about him. It's about his broken body. It's about his shed blood. It's about the forgiveness that he offers by his sacrifice. It's about the, it's, it's about the resurrection. His resurrection, but his resurrection is our hope. Like Christianity, just if you're new here, just understand this. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It is not seven ways to, to make your life better. That's just not it. It is about the work of a God who died for sinners. And and our hope is wholly based in him. Now, there is some derivative effect of that. We are called new creations in Christ, set apart for God's work. I'm all for that. We will celebrate that. But first and foremost, it's about Jesus. Now, everything I've said so far is is what you know about communion. It's it's vertical. So in communion, we take the bread and we take the cup and we think Jesus did it all. And we're kind of looking up like, thank you, God, for doing this for me. And it, it feels real individualistic and it feels very vertical. Jesus did this and therefore I enjoy this. That's kind of the, the equation we have in communion. I want to direct you back, though, to chapter 10. So this is one chapter before our chapter in verse 11, or in chapter 11, chapter 10, verse 17, here's what Paul says, kind of setting the stage for chapter 11. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. One bread, we who are many are one body, because we all take from the same bread. So it is a vertical message. Jesus did it all. Jesus died. His broken body, his shed blood, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his redemption. I mean, his everything. I'm all for that. It's a vertical message. But it also, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 17, has horizontal implications. No matter our diverse backgrounds, that's what he's talking about. We who are many, no matter our diverse backgrounds, Some are blue collar, some are white collar. Some some are black guys, some are white guys. Some are women, some are men. Like we, we come from a lot of different backgrounds. We who are many 
are all one. No matter our diverse backgrounds, we are united, not just to Jesus, but this text is saying to one another. Do you understand that? that there, there is an implication in our community here that I think we often ignore in communion. Like This is not just about we are united with Christ. Thank God that's true. But we're united to one another despite all the things that are different about us as we gather. That's what the text is saying. That's what 1 Corinthians 10, 17 is saying. We, we are not just united to Jesus, but we are united to one another by our faith in Jesus. So ultimately what Paul is saying here, and I, I just want you to hear this, the Lord's Supper proclaims no distinction. There's no distinction. It, it doesn't matter the background you come from. If you come to the table, you come because you are united to Christ and you are united with each other because of Christ. That's what it says when you're taking communion. Until we start making the table over here for the haves and the table over here for the have-nots. See, th this is the white-collar folks and this is the blue-collar folks. We're, we're going to be in the trachinium over here and we're going to be in the atrium over here. Do you, do you see the problem? So the whole idea that the message of we are one in Christ, we are one with Christ and we are one in Christ, it gets unraveled. It gets unwound. And a lot of it is because we've adopted cultural norms in how we see each other within the church. And we're like, it's not that big of a deal. It's the way the world works. It's not that big of a deal out there. It's a real big deal in here. It's a real big deal in here. Look, at this point, you might be kind of like, hey, I don't know what the big deal is. Why are you getting all worked up? I understand why Paul got worked up. Paul got worked up because they were worshiping in a home and there was a dissociation between the haves and the have-nots. But when we have communion, we've got three or four tables, but everyone comes to the same tables. I mean, rich and poor, black and white, everyone comes to the same table. And, and so because of this facility, we don't have that problem. You, you might be thinking, like, what's all the fuss about? We have no distinctions in our celebration of communion. Yeah, but, but no. What about the heart condition that enables factions, that enables divisions within the church? Is that still part of our paradigm? Could, could we possibly be accused of courting the affluent at the expense of the poor? Is, is that something that the world would do? And, and when we walk from the world into church or, or from not knowing Jesus to knowing Jesus, could that be something that is residual? And we borrow from the world and thereby ignore the poor? Wouldn't that just be a different manifestation of the same root problem? I, I get that the application here is in communion, and, and well, it should be. That's it's an important thing to apply it to. But couldn't that principle be applied elsewhere? Could that be you? It can definitely be me. On a bad day, I'm right there. Every time. On a bad day, I'm, I'm right there. Could it be you? Let's look at verses 27 through 32. 
See what Paul has to say about rooting out that disposition. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What's that all about? Plain and simple, that's a warning. It's, it's a strong warning. You should be asking the question right now if you take Scripture seriously. What does it mean to take the bread or the cup in an unworthy manner? Because there's a warning, like judgment will come to you if you take the cup in an unworthy manner or take the bread. And, so you should be asking that question. What are we actually examining? The, the text says we need to examine ourselves. So like, how so? That's a question you should be asking. What does it mean to eat or drink without discerning the body? That's a great question. That's a really hard question to answer. I had to work really hard for that. And the whole premise behind this is we got to figure this out because we don't want to be judged. Like, you, you don't even have to be a Christian. I think you're going to agree with me on this. If there is a God and, and he will judge us in sin, you don't want that. Like, that, that's a bad thing. And Paul's like, hey, that's on the table. Like, you better figure this out. Paul is worked up. He, he really thinks this is a big deal. And, and we don't want judgment. And so, what do we do with this? <clears throat> when it talks about don't take the bread or the cup in an unworthy manner, are you like me for 25 years I've thought what that means. I mean, I've, I've said this to, to our congregation. I've, I've said, well, we can't go out on Friday or Saturday night and act like a hypocrite and, and then come here and just go, oh, I'm going to take some communion and I'm, I'm a Christian on Sunday and I'm, I'm whatever I want to be on Friday or Saturday. And, and we don't repent. We don't pray. We don't do anything. There, there's no inspection whatsoever. We're just playing a religious game. And that in my mind, is, is what it means to take the bread or the cup in an unworthy manner. That's not good. Like, nobody should ever do that. You, you should feel gross doing that. Jesus didn't die on the cross to excuse you to hypocrisy, I promise you. But I'm also not sure that's what it's talking about. I, I don't think that's good, but in this context... It feels like taking the bread or the cup in an unworthy manner is allowing our enjoyment of privilege to blind us and others to communion's meaning, specifically the meaning of we're all in the same boat. We're same, same, like rich and poor, black and white. We're all coming to the table because we are sinners and we need grace provided only by the person of Jesus Christ. We're, we're all the same. And, and we would say, I think, yes, we believe that. We all eat at the same table, unless the other table has better food. 
And that's when it gets a little hard, isn't it? And we, we, we're like, yeah, but I like lamb. Or I like whatever's being served in the trachinium. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. At that point, this, this desire that we have theologically for unity bows to social stratification, to social stratification and, and maybe a little bit of hedonistic desire. I mean, I, I get the theology, but food's better over here. You can fall into that. I can fall into it. We, this is a good warning. This is the kindness of God that he would warn us of this. Verses 27 through 32 is laced with judgment themes because God doesn't want our societal norms to undermine the unity that God intends for us in the body of Christ. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning the body did kind of a deep dive into this. It's not easy. I think it's the idea that we in the body of Christ differ from the world. So the world out there is going to treat people based on preferential standards. We're going to value the rich more than we're going to value the poor. Paul's like, I get that that happens out there. It's not going to happen in here. It's just not. To differentiate is to discern the body. It's to appreciate everyone. It's to realize that we are all cut from the exact same mold, that we desperately need Jesus whether we are rich or poor, whether we come from Christian backgrounds or non I mean, what, whatever it is, there's one thing that we need and we are unified in that one thing. That's what it means to discern the body, to be different, to, to see each other, not from the world's lens, but from a Christocentric lens. Verses 33 and 34 are going to tell us how to respond. You've seen a problem. You've seen a hope and a standard. You've seen a warning. And now you're going to see the way forward. And I just want to tell you before we talk about it, it's super simple. This is wonderful and just how easy this is. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Above the other things, I will give directions when I come. That last phrase ticks me off, because you're like, we don't get that. You're like, I, I'd love to know like the rest of the story that Paul said he's delivering to the Corinthians, and like, oops, I figured it out in heaven. Here's the great part about this. I mean, it's, it's so simple. Wait for each other. Based on our unity in Christ, put aside 
your desire is to satiate your stomachs. Wait for each other. Eat at home if you have to. Don't, don't come for selfish gain at the expense of those who have less. Just wait. We're, we're all going to take the same bread. We're all going to drink the same wine. We're all going to do that at the same time. That's unity. It's at least a picture of unity. Don't let your hedonistic desires or your bougie dispositions unwind the message of communion or unwind the message of the church. That's what it's saying. Just be kind. Be together. Care for each other. Like, this is not rocket science. I want to be clear as we conclude. I'm not down on rich people. I'm really not. Like, I, I come from some affluence. I'm down on entitlement. I, I'm down on elitism. I'm, I'm down on favoritism. I'm down on hedonism. I'm down on any culturalism that stratifies the body of Christ, that makes us look with preference at other people. I, I'm down on that. Paul is down on that. If you look at the book of James, he's down on that. Is it easy to do in our culture? Absolutely. That's that's why it's such a danger. It's so prevalent out there that it's easy just to bring it with us. Last Sunday, we we talked on subordination. And it's not an easy concept. And for the most part, people were really gracious. There was a little bit of pushback. And one of the things that was said after one of the services, and it was said kindly. This, is, this wasn't real contentious or anything. But basically like, hey, subordination is in the Bible, but that doesn't mean it has to exist today. And the argument then was slavery was not condemned in the Bible, but we would condemn condemn it today. And the idea is if we're going to condemn slavery, why can't we condemn subordination as subordination allegedly is is some sort of evil? And I'm introducing a new subject, which is a terrible way to conclude a sermon. And everyone's like, oh, this is getting interesting. How are we bringing these together? The lady who raised that objection and the idea is like, it's not overtly condemned in Scripture, but we, we would overtly condemn it now. Like, why can't we do that with subordination? First of all, subordination is beautiful and rooted in the Godhead, and it's not something to be condemned. It's something actually to be celebrated. But, but on the topic of slavery, she was right in one thing. There is no overt condemnation of slavery, a, a systemic slavery. There, there, there's nothing in Scripture. I, I kind of wish there was. There's, there's not. <clears throat> Here's the rest of the story on that topic, though, and I, th- I think it's going to matter, and I think you'll see why. If you look at the book Philemon, it's the book right before Hebrews. It's like 12 verses, a little, little bitty book. <clears throat> Paul writes to Philemon, and, and Philemon is a guy who owns a slave, and the slave ran away, and the slave became a Christian, and the slave became a servant of Paul who is imprisoned. And then Paul is sending the former slave, now Christian, back to Philemon. And and he says, I'm sending him back because I feel like it's the right thing to do. But I want you to know that he's, he's not just a slave, he's your brother in Christ. 
And with that, the hinge of Paul's argument is live accordingly. So he's not overtly condemning systemic slavery. He's saying, see him as a brother in Christ. I don't care what his social status was. He is your brother. Do you see that that's greater? Do you see that when we start to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ despite our backgrounds, that preferential treatment is dismantled from the inside out? I, I get that we would have loved for Paul to dismantle slavery from the outside in. He dismantles it from the inside out by saying, love him as your brother or as your sister. I think that's exactly the principle that we see here in 1 Corinthians. Ultimately, he's saying, we're family. Treat each other accordingly. Don't don't succumb to the world's standards. Rise above them. Know your theology and the hope that you and everyone in this room have in Christ. And live accordingly. And then you see things like justice, kindness, sacrifice. And then the world looks at the church and goes, whoa, those folks are different. Maybe there's something to this Jesus guy. Turns out he knew what he was talking about. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you give us instruction on communion. And in a couple of weeks, I pray that we would remember the principles found in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34, with application to communion. But Father, thank you that the principles that inform communion also inform how we live with each other Monday through Saturday. And Father, I pray that you would, by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, enable us to think about one another in ways that glorify you and in ways that reflect the hope that we have in Christ alone. Father, I I pray that we would enjoy unity with you, and I pray, therefore, that we would enjoy unity with one another, and I pray that the world would take note and that they would know that you are a living, transformational God who saves by grace through faith alone in Jesus. Amen.